Novelist J.R. Tolkien, author of the Lord of the Rings series, he once wrote these words, It does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live next door to him. I'd imagine living beside a fire breather can present some problems. It's hard to just do whatever you want whenever you want when there's a monster on the other side of the duplex. I would think a dragon can be a drag on your plans. If you live next door to a dragon and ignore his existence, you're likely to get torched, maybe even scorched. And Tolkien's quote is a reminder to us all. For we live in God's neighborhood. And God is a monster. He is a merciful monster, granted. But He is a monster nonetheless. God is the biggest on the block. He is a fire breather. God is not afraid of imposing His will on others. He is a God who deserves our respect and our obedience. And when you live next door to such a God, you can't just do what you want when you want. You can get torched. If you rebel against Him, if you make a mockery of Him, He loves you enough to drag down your plans. The nation Israel was proof of this. The Hebrews lived in God's neighborhood for 700 years, yet they tried their best to ignore Him. For the last 200 of those 700 years, the northern tribes lived in blatant rebellion of God, and they served idols. The prophet Amos was sent by God to warn Israel that God is a fire breather, that unless they repent, they'll get scorched. And now in these last three chapters here in Amos, the prophet sees five visions. He'll discuss them, the locusts, the fire, the plumb line, the summer fruit, and the destruction of Bethel. And this is how we wrap up the prophecy of Amos. Chapter 7 begins, Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, He formed locust swarms, at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. Now, there were two harvests in Israel, one in the spring and one in the fall. The first fruits of the harvest were always offered to God. Then the second portion were paid as taxes to the king. They were the king's harvest, or as labeled here, the king's mowings. Thus, the early harvest contained minimal provision for the people themselves. They depended on the later harvest. Yet, it is the later harvest here that gets threatened by this plague. It's God's intention here to bug the people of Israel. He's going to get their attention by a ravaging swarm of locusts that's going to cover the land, that's going to eat away the vegetation. One of the things the ancients dreaded most was the plague of locusts. Swarms of locusts have the potential of consuming every bit of vegetation in sight. They have a ferocious appetite. The ancients called them hunger incarnate. Well, verse 2 continues. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. 
Amos saw the vision and then he prayed, Lord, please don't bring this upon your people. God heard the prophet's prayer and he answered it and he spared Israel the locusts. In Amos' vision, after the green grass had gone, but apparently before the crops were damaged, he interceded on behalf of the people of Israel and the Lord spared the total devastation and starvation that could have come. That was vision one. It has a hopeful message. Verse four begins the second vision. Thus says the Lord God, thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Now, due to severe drought, brush fires erupted all over the northern kingdom, devouring thousands of acres. Sound familiar? Yeah. Similar to what's happening in North Georgia right now. For a week, we've been living in this smoky haze. Well, the fires Amos saw in his vision were so intense that they consumed the great deep. In other words, not even water from the sea could extinguish their flames. Well, then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Again, the prophet Amos, he intercedes for God's rebellious people. Verse 6 tells us, So the Lord relented concerning this, This also shall not be, says the Lord God. It's amazing, but what water couldn't put out, notice prayer extinguishes. Often when it's not within our power to help someone, we'll try to comfort them. We'll say something like, well, I guess the least I can do is pray for you. But what we don't realize is that the least we can do is in fact the best we can do. In fact, the greatest way to help a needy person is to pray for them. Never underestimate the power of intercessory prayer. It reminds me of the congressman who walked through the White House several days in a row. And each day he saw an old man sitting on a bench. This old man was crying. He was obviously distressed. Finally, the third day, the congressman, he asked him if he could help. The man said he wanted to see President Lincoln. You see, his son had been court-martialed for a crime he didn't commit, and he was sentenced to be shot the very next week. Well, the congressman was so moved, he took the old man to see Lincoln. When he told the president his story, the president shook his head. He says, I'm sorry, General Butler sent me a telegram just this morning asking me not to pardon any of his court-martialed soldiers. He's trying to maintain discipline. Well, the father's grief was palpable. Lincoln could see the heartbreak just written across his face. Suddenly, the president, he grabbed a pen and he jotted down a note. It read, Job Smith is not to be shot until further orders from me, signed Abraham Lincoln. Well, the dad thought about it for a minute and he said, wow, he said, I thought you were issuing a pardon. What if you order him shot next week? And that's when Abraham Lincoln answered, Well, my old friend, I see you are not very well acquainted with me, for if your son never looks on death till further orders come from me to shoot him, he will live to be a great deal older than Methuselah. And this is the heart of God. If you know Him, if you know God, you realize that He loves mercy. He loves grace. 
And he responds to the pleas of a heavy heart. This is why our prayers matter to God. It's been said God warms his hands at man's heart when he prays. God does respond to our intercession, to our pleas. Israel here deserved a severe punishment. God had planned the locusts and the fire, yet because of Amos' intercession, the Lord had withheld His judgment and had shown mercy. The people of Israel should have been thankful. Mercy should have been a cause for repentance, but the people ignored God's benevolence and they continued to live in their sin. And thus verse 7 tells us, Thus He showed me, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, a plumb line is a carpenter's tool. It's the ancient level. A plumb was a string weighted on one end. Drop the plumb alongside a wall, and you can tell whether the wall is level or crooked. I have a friend who's a rather plump guy, and he always asks, he says, how do you know a man is on the level? He usually rubs his belly, and he says, well, it's when the bubble is in the middle. Well, here God uses the ancient plumb line to determine whether Israel is on the level. He measures them up to see if they're shooting straight or if they're crooked. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. The first two visions ended with mercy. God relented of His judgment, but not this third vision. God refuses to remove His plumb. Morally and spiritually, Israel was out of plumb with the will of God. And it's dangerous to leave a wall standing that's crooked, or that's leaning. It can do real damage if it falls. It requires demolition. And this was the problem with Israel. The nation had gotten so far out of plumb with God's covenants and with God's commandments that she was now dangerous. She was past being straightened or pulled back into line. And it was now necessary, Amos says, that the nation be torn down. You know, we as God's people today also need to be careful that we don't drift, that we don't lean, that we don't get out of plumb with the will of God. Yes, God accepts us just as we are, right where we're at. He takes us crooked and bent out of shape, but He doesn't leave us that way. God's Spirit puts us in plumb. He straightens us out. He corrects what's been twisted by sin. In fact, Christ Himself is the plumb line. His holiness, His purity, His wisdom is the standard. As Christians, we're called to be like Jesus, to be His followers. That means Christian discipleship involves holding every area of my life up against the standard. We should do this regularly. The goal is to resolve the divergence between what I am and what Jesus is. And here's the problem, if I'm not subject to correction, if I'm resistant to change, and if I continue to lean further and further out of plumb, eventually I become dangerous to the people around me. I become a bad witness, and God has to tear down my life. Again, this is what happened to Israel. 
Verse 10 says, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Now it's amazing. Here's the only response that Amos gets to his visions and warnings. He has trumpeted the judgments of God. He's prayed for his people. He's pleaded for their mercy, for God's mercy on them. And yet what does he get for his faithfulness to Israel? How about opposition, persecution, accusation? Even the clergy of his day, Amaziah the priest, who should have been his ally, comes out and refers to him, calls him a conspirator. It's been written, throughout church history, religious leaders, from popes to pastors, have sometimes been the least responsive to revival or reform. Renewal movements threaten their vested interests. And this was the case with this Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, his purse, His prestige, his power were all intertwined with the false religion that he propagated. He rejected the truth, not because Amos' call wasn't clear or that his arguments were not convincing. He rejected the truth because it threatened his own selfish interests. You know, we wonder why everyone doesn't embrace God's truth. Why false prophets don't repent and recant their false teachings. Well, it's not because the truth isn't convincing. It's not because God's spokesmen aren't articulate. It's because false prophets profit from their falsehoods. Their reputation, their wealth, their influence depends on the system they've created. Embracing the truth would mean trusting in God. That's something they don't want to do. Well, verse 11, For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Now Amaziah is putting words in Amos' mouth. The prophet hasn't conspired against the king. He was inspired by God. It shows how out of plumb Amaziah and the religious establishment was when they try to silence the one man who speaks for God. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. Amaziah is trying to run Amos out of town. Go back from where you came. Go home to Judah. When he says, there eat bread, he means let them pay your salary. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. Nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Now remember we noted in chapter 1 that originally Amos was a cowboy. He was a cowboy and a farmer. He had a ranch that apparently where he raised both cows and sheep, and he also grew figs. Go figure. Amos was a country boy. He was from a little town called Tekoa. It was a remote settlement, really the last settlement between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. This meant that he cared little for the social graces of the big city snobs. Amos spoke his mind. Amos was a straight shooter. I love Amos. He's the southern prophet. Amos' reply here is, in essence, his way of saying, Wait a minute. Nobody pays me. I'm not a professional prophet. God called me. And I'm here because I love God 
and because I love his people. As we said before, Amos was an amateur. And knowing the meaning of that word, I'm sure he didn't mind the label. It's a French word which means for the love of it. This is what Amos did. This is why he did what he did. Not for the bread, but because he was dead to his desires and alive to God. Oh, how we need men today like Amos. Men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Men and women who have counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need pastors today who aren't in it for the bread. Who speak the truth without worrying about its ramifications on attendance or on the offering or even on their own employment. We need men like Amos who serve the Lord not for a buck but for the love of it. Well, then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. The Hebrew word spout literally means to drip. And in telling Amos not to speak, Amaziah is trying to turn off what he considers to be a leaky faucet. Amos is flabbergasted by this. He replies, God tells me to go and prophesy and you say to shut up and go home? Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. Wow, how's that for rebuttal? Rather than drip, Amos gushes. He pronounces heavy judgments on this so-called priest. You need to be careful when you live next door to a dragon. Chapter 8. Thus the Lord showed me, the Lord God showed me, Behold a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Now in this vision, Amos, he sees a basket of summer fruit, or in essence, ripened fruit. It's a symbol that Israel is ripe and ready for judgment. In fact, the Hebrew word summer fruit are kayets. And the word end or yets, it sounds alike. Here Amos is using two homonyms or words that are similar in their pronunciation. They sound alike to grab the listener's attention. God is showing Israel that it's ripe for judgment, that the end is near for his people. Notice the last line of verse 2, I will not pass by them anymore. Of course, this harkens back to the exodus from Egypt. You remember, because of the blood of the sacrifice, God provided a means of escape from the plague. Because the sacrifice was spread on the doorposts of the Hebrew houses, the death angel passed over God's people. Judgment was spared. But they will not be passed over this time, Amos says. Judgment is coming. Verse 3, And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. In other words, the day is coming for this idolatrous northern kingdom 
when the worship band is going to play funeral dirges. When their praise is going to be turned to wailing. He says, hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat? Amos highlights the people's greed. You see, rather than enjoy the feasts and enjoy their Sabbath day and enjoy worshiping God, no, they can't wait for it to get over so they can go back to business and pad their own pockets. He says, making the ephod small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit. Here he's enumerating the evils of the people. He says, making the ephod small. The ephod was a volume measurement. A small ephod was something that appeared more or heavier than it really was. You see, making the ephod small was the equivalent of putting a few potato chips in a bag and then pumping it with air in order to think you're getting more than what you're really getting. That's making the ephod small. Here's another example. Giving you an order of small fries in a large fry container. Wait a minute, I thought I ordered large fries. Well, it is large fries. You got the box. I didn't get the large fries. That's making the ephod small. Or making a loan and then tacking on frivolous charges to squeeze more money out of you. That's making the ephod small. These are all ways to cheat the customer and God hates them. Sir Burton once said, A business must have a conscience as well as a counting house. Business ethics are more than just how I can appear conscientious and still increase my bottom line. It's actually seeing a responsibility to the people that support my business. And for the Christian, it even goes further. It's doing all that I can do to the glory of God. Well, Amos tells us that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. In other words, there were business people deliberately taking advantage of the poor and of the oppressed. The rich in Israel had created a system that ensured certain people's failure, trapped them in poverty. They devised a system that perpetuated an underclass that ended up serving the upper class. They were exploiting the poor. Amos is saying God is against the filthy rich. And then verse 7 tells us, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. He's talking about the ebbs and flows of the flooding of the Nile. He's saying, likewise, Israel will be flooded with trouble. You know, what an ominous thing to say, though, in verse 7. Surely, the Lord says to Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Aren't you thankful for the blood of Jesus? Where Jesus says, No, I can't remember any of your sins. I will cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. I'll bury it in the deepest parts of the ocean. I'll never remember your sin again. I'll forget your sins. What a difference it is to stand on your own righteousness or to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus 
and to make sure your sins are under the blood of Christ. What a difference. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Here God's judgments sound like they're a forecast of the last days. Cataclysmic judgments are going to shake our planet. We know from Revelation this is yet to come. Verse 11 tells us, and this might be the most devastating judgment. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Here is the most, here's the worst possible form of judgment. A famine, a drought, but not of food, not of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And notice the problem is not having the words of the Lord. It's not hearing the words of the Lord. In most homes today, you can find two or three Bibles sitting around. You can turn on the radio or you can go on the internet and you can hear Bible teaching 24-7. We have the Word, but do we hear it? Like Israel of old, some of us have had it for so long and we've rejected it for so often, we've stopped hearing it. Once two men, they were talking. When one man said to the other, he says, wow, he says, my wife talks to herself a lot. The other man replies, mine does too, but she thinks I'm listening. We have God's Word, we hear it, but do we really listen? This means we hunger for truth. Are we starved for truth? You know, some of us, we've got the answers right at our fingertips, but because we don't hear God's Word and take it to heart, we're always searching and never finding. I read an interesting story that took place during the administration of President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. At the time, White House receptions, they were so full of smiles and politeness and meaningless pleasantries, no one really listened to each other. It was all just meaningless chit-chat. Well, Roosevelt was sort of tired of the charade, and so he decided to see if anyone was really listening that night. So at one of the big receptions, he started approaching person after person, flashing his big smile, shaking their hand, and this is what he said, Hi, I murdered my grandmother this morning. Well, people were just responding automatically, you know, with comments like, oh, how lovely. And keep up the great work, Mr. President. Not really thinking about what he had said and not really thinking about what they had said. No one noticed this until the president approached one foreign diplomat. He said, hi, I murdered my grandmother this morning. FDR said he replied, well, I'm sure she had it coming. God is speaking to us. But are we really listening? We read a few obligatory Bible verses from time to time. We listen to a sermon on occasion. Then we brush it off by the time we get home. Are we really listening to the words of the Lord? If you don't listen, God will eventually dull your ability to hear. Or He'll take away your opportunity to hear. There's a famine in the land. 
not of food, but of hearing the Word of God. It was said of Israel, a virus of unresponsiveness had debilitated the audio nerve in the souls of the people. Even if they had wanted to hear after a while, they couldn't. And this can happen to us. When folks don't want to hear God's Word, God eventually honors their desire. He removes the very opportunity. Israel suffered a famine because they neglected the truth that they had been given. Verse 12, They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Have you ever been up late at night and you see the starving kids on the late night infomercials? Their emaciated bodies and their protruding ribs and their swollen stomachs and their sunken eye sockets. It's horrible. But this is how Amos saw Israel's young people. From a spiritual point of view, they were dying of spiritual malnourishment and starvation. And if we could see today through spiritual eyes, this is how we would see our contemporaries today. Their soul is shriveled from a lack of spiritual meat. They listen to what tickles their ears rather than what feeds their soul. And if you've moved about our country lately, and you've been in another place and you've had to look for a, a church that faithfully teaches the Bible, then perhaps you understand Amos' statement. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Churches that teach the whole counsel of God are becoming fewer and fewer today. There is a famine in our land. It's God's judgment upon us. Here's a message I got the other day from a fellow who tried to find a church closer to his house, but he's recently come back to Calvary Chapel. He wrote me and he said this, Sandy, I would like to say thank you for being a man of God and a man of the Word. After spending four years trying to plug into a local church and seeing the state of the church and its shallow teaching and lack of discernment, these last few weeks of sermons have been water to a man dying in the desert. If anything positive has come of this experience, it's been to drive me to understand the Word better and to learn to discern all the bad teachings, teachers, and false doctrines popular today in evangelical circles. The saying, you don't know what you have till it's gone, applies to my wife and I when it comes to your teaching. God bless you. Now, I don't share that letter to brag. What I do from week to week shouldn't be exceptional. It shouldn't be unusual. You should be able to go to any church in our area and hear the Bible expounded faithfully. And yet, sadly, that's not the case. And this creates a church full of spiritually anemic Christians. Today's biblical illiteracy is shocking. People don't have the tools that they need to live the Christian life. If all you get is sermonettes for Christianettes, you dry up. And there are some churches I know that believe the Bible, even fight for its inspiration. They just don't teach it. Again, there is a famine in the land. Souls are starving. They need God's Word. The chapter closes, Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall, 
and never rise again. Those who had followed the false gods, the idols of the north, they will fall and never get up. Chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. Again, be careful if you live next door to a dragon. The altar was the center of the national life of God's people, Israel. This is where they made their offerings to, or their sacrifices to their various gods. The beginning and ending of their relationship was with their gods was at the temple, by the altar. And yet the, and yet the northern kingdom had introduced idols into their temple. Their worship was no longer pure. And here Amos says that God is going to topple their temple. He's going to destroy the temple in Bethel. He says, I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Be careful if you live next door to a dragon. This passage reminds me of Psalm 139. But Psalm 139 has a little different tone. It reads, Where can, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Of course, the tone in Psalm 139 is God's care and provision. That, that He's with us wherever we go. And He's always there to comfort us and help us. But the opposite can be true too. He says, I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. There is a relationship with God where if you rebel against Him, if you sin against Him, if you make mockery of Him, He'll track you down. He'll search you out. There'll be nowhere for you to hide or to escape from His judgment. God is inescapable. And as the psalmist puts it, as the psalmist puts it, this is a great comfort. But as Amos puts it, this is a serious warning. As we mentioned last week, God is saying to the sinner, as Joe Lewis said to Billy Kahn, I think his name was, you can run, but you can't hide. None of us can escape the scrutiny of God. Francis Thompson was reared in a Christian home. He even had studied for the ministry for a time. But he wasn't willing to surrender his all to the Lord. He ran from God into the world of drugs. He did anything he had to do for his daily fix. Thompson was a fugitive from God. But he did have a way with words. And one day he submitted one of his poems to a London newspaper. As a matter of fact, the publisher and his wife were so moved by the poem that they started searching all over London for its author. They finally found Francis Thompson. He had no shirt on underneath his rumpled coat. 
His shoes had holes in them. He had no gloves to protect his hands. What he had written spoke of the impossibility of escaping the inescapable God. Thankfully, eventually, Thompson became a Christian. But the poem he wrote, entitled The Hound of Heaven, has become a haunting classic. Listen to a few of its lines. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him under running laughter, down titanic glooms of chasm fears, from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet, all things betray you who betrayest me. Think about that last line. All things betray you who betrayest me. In other words, are you tired of things in your life not going right? How come nothing works out for me? All things betrayest, betray you who betrayest him. How come nothing ever works out right for me? How come I never get a break? How come all my plans end up in disarray and disappointment? All things betray you who betrayest Him. Are you tired of searching for peace? Watching it slip through your fingers like a greased pig? Like Jonah, are you tired of setting sail and always ending up in the belly of a fish? Could it be that you're running from God? Could it be that you're trying to avoid the hound of heaven when God is trying to run you up a tree? God loves us. And He will chase us to our grave. But he won't catch us unless we're willing to be caught. It's been said, God will never pass the picket line of the will. Don't you think it's time for you tonight to surrender to God? T.S. Eliot once wrote, At the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. There's a feeling of coming home. When you come home to God, there's a quiet rest. When you come home to God, it's like you're back where you belong. And we're always meant to be. God is in pursuit of us at the moment He chases us to help us. But if we resist His overtures of grace, the day will come when He'll catch up to us for judgment. Verse 5. The Lord God of hosts who touches the earth and it melts... Again, be careful when you live next door to a fire breather. And all who dwell there mourn, all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. Again, God is saying that the land is going to shrink and rise as the water level of the Nile River there in Egypt. And the prophet here is speaking of end time judgments when the earth will convulse, when the earth will pulsate. When God will touch the earth for judgment and its fragile ecosystems will melt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth. What a revealing phrase. Who's founded his strata in the earth. You might wonder, what does Amos, 
a backwoods prophet living in the 8th century B.C. know about the geological column or the stratas in the earth? Well, apparently he knew a lot. For one thing, he knew it wasn't the result of millions of years of uninterrupted sedimentary deposits. No, he saw it as the work of God. He says, God founded the strata. And Amos even knows the mechanics of God's work. He says, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. What founded the earth's geological layers or its stratas? Not the principles of uniformitarianism, of things just happening as they do today over long periods of time. Not that. No, he says the waters of the sea covered the face of the earth. He's talking about Noah's flood. It was the flood of Noah's day that shaped the earth's crust and formed the geological layers. God poured water on the earth. Amos was up on his geology. Verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel? Says the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful nation, or the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. Now since God brought the Hebrews up out of Egypt, they thought they were immune from God's judgment. But God also brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. That didn't give them an executive pardon. Here God says to Israel, you're the sinful kingdom. And in verse 8, he adds a ray of light into what is a dark passage. Even though the sinful northern kingdom will be destroyed, God does promise to save a remnant of his people. There were Israelis who would survive Assyria's invasion. Today, those ancestors live in the land again. Modern day Israel is a fulfillment of many of the Old Testament prophets, this being one as well. And then verse 9 tells us, For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. After the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C., Israel was scattered. And they have been sifted for the last 2,000 years. As Israel has been scattered across the globe, as they've gone from nation to nation, as they've been persecuted and gone to new nations and new places, even as they've come to America, they've been sifted, they've been tried, they've been purged for the last 2,000 years. But here God promises that in the end, Israel will not be lost. They will not fall to the ground or lose their identity. Today, the return of the Jews to their ancient homeland and the rebirth of the nation of Israel is proof of the fulfillment of this promise. That God will save a remnant and establish them in the land. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, The calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. I heard it said, The greatest sin of all sins is the sin of saying, I have no sin. Israel had denied their sin. Well, the calamity won't overtake us. 
It won't confront us. Thus, God was enabled to help them. Always remember, the only sin God won't forgive. Know the answer? The only sin God won't forgive? An unconfessed sin. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, the prophecy of Amos, it closes with five verses and five promises, each verse declaring a promise. In fact, we could spend the next five weeks on how God is fulfilling these promises to Israel, even in our own day. But tonight, we'll just read the text, and we'll note the promises. In fact, I'll give them to you up front. The restoration of the Davidic dynasty, Israel's domination of her enemies, the cultivation of the land, the accumulation of the exiles, and the perpetuation of the nation. It all gets predicted in these last five verses of the prophecy of Amos. Verse 11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now this could be a reference to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And certainly the construction of its implements have already begun. More likely though, this is a reference to the Davidic dynasty, the house of David. God promised David that he would never lack a son or heir to sit on his throne. This is why Jesus Christ was born of the lineage of David. Jesus is the rightful heir to the house of David. And when he returns, he's going to establish David's throne and rebuild his kingdom in Israel. Verse 12, that they may, prop, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Again, when Jesus returns, Israel will rule the world. She'll no longer be a pawn in the hands of the Gentiles. Israel will reign over the Gentiles. Here he mentions Edom. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, the harvest will be so plentiful that by the time they've gathered it all in, it'll be time to sow again. Mountains dripping with wine is an idiom that speaks of prosperity, like a land flowing with milk and honey. Here he predicts the fruitfulness of the land as God blesses them. And then he says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. When Jesus returns and reestablishes the Davidic kingdom, the Jews who've been scattered all over the world will return to their homeland of Israel. We see the beginnings of this return happening today. Modern Israel has guaranteed Jewish exiles the right of return. No Jew can be denied entry to his homeland. When we go to Israel in a few months, you'll see cities everywhere. Understand that a hundred years ago, those cities didn't exist. God predicted that they would build their waste cities. They would inhabit them again. They built vineyards. All these things didn't exist a hundred years ago. And yet the desert has been turned into a garden. Just as Amos predicted. And then verse 15. I will plant them in their land 
and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And this verse is what clearly places these promises in the last days. After Assyria and Babylon displaced the Hebrews in 722 and in 586 B.C. respectively, the house of Jacob was restored to the land. And the Jews occupied Israel for another 600 years until 70 A.D. when they were uprooted by Rome. This verse, though, speaks of a permanent planting of the Jews. When they'll no longer be pulled up from the land. And since this hasn't happened in the past, it obviously is referring to today or to a planting that's still in the future. And thus we have the prophecy of Amos.